All right, last week we covered the first and second missionary journeys. Uh, get this going here. Uh, we said that a good memory aid for remembering where those journeys were in the book of Acts was to start with Acts what? 13. I don't know a good memory aid for remembering Acts 13, but you've got to remember that much anyway. <laughs> and then, then add three chapters to it for each one of those. Uh, for some people, 13 is an unlucky number. This is lucky for us, isn't it? It's a good material there in Acts 13. Uh, so Acts 13, first missionary journey. Uh, how about the second missionary journey? So we just add three chapters to it. And actually it starts just a few verses prior to 16, but that gets us in the ballpark. And so what about the third missionary journey? 19. And again, we would back up a few verses to chapter 18 and verse 23. But that puts us right there. Um, Paul's third missionary journey will be the one that has a direct bearing on both these letters to the church at Corinth. In fact, we're going to see that Paul wrote four, or it's believed that he wrote four of his 13 letters on this third missionary journey. Uh, Galatians, we'll talk about that more in a minute. First and second Corinthians and the letter to the Romans. So, where do you think Paul begins this journey? he does in his other journeys, Antioch of Syria. We talked about another Antioch that we called Antioch of what? Pisidia. Um, and we'll see him there in, in just a few minutes, right? Antioch of Pisidia. We call those just to distinguish between the two. All right. We go to Acts 18 and verse 23. That passage tells us, as I have it thrown up on the board here, that Paul departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And although it's not specifically mentioned, the common assumption is that, just as he did on his second missionary journey, the assumption is that he would have revisited Tarsus, which would have been in his hometown in Cilicia, but also the, the tri-cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derby there in Galatia, as well as Antioch of Pisidia. Um, from Antioch of Pisidia, last week we talked about this on the second missionary journey. Where was it that Paul wanted to go? He ended up going to Troas, but where did he want to go? He wanted to go into Asia, right? That Roman province of Asia. And uh, then he thought uh, the Holy Spirit... Uh, didn't allow him to preach the word there at that time, and so then he wanted to go into Bithynia. That's the orange area to the north of Asia. And the Holy Spirit didn't allow that either, so he went on to where? I heard someone say it earlier. To Troas. Well, and on the third missionary journey, he goes from Antioch of Pisidia, not to Troas, but to Ephesus. Now, at the same time, right there at the end of Acts chapter 18, there's a brief shift in the focus of Luke's narrative uh, to that of Aquila and Priscilla, who were in Ephesus. And recall that, that uh, Paul had dropped Aquila and Priscilla off in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey on his return trip. Okay. Um, so uh, Luke records this interaction between Aquila and Priscilla and a man who is described as being eloquent, a man who is described as mighty in the scriptures, one who 
taught accurately the things of the Lord, but a man who knew only the baptism of John. And what was that man's name? Apollos. Okay, and, and this is all kind of happening as Paul is en route to Ephesus. He hasn't gotten there yet, but this, this sort of happens. As, as students of the Bible know, Aquila and Priscilla pull Apollos aside and they explain to him more accurately the way of God. Apollos then leaves for Corinth, and it's after he arrives in Corinth that Paul now arrives in Ephesus. So while in Ephesus, it says that Paul spoke boldly in the synagogue for three months, and before then withdrawing to the school of Tyrannus, where it says that he reasoned daily for an additional two years. Now from that, we might conclude that, that Paul had spent a little over two years in Ephesus. But in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31, that's, that's near the end of this journey, where Paul is in Miletus. He calls for the Ephesian elders. And he says, uh, he reminds them that for three years he did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so we conclude that Paul was in Ephesus, or that area around Ephesus, for a period of three years. <clears throat> now it's during that time that Acts 19 and verse 10 would say that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now when we talked about Asia, were we talking about that massive continent of Asia? What are we talking about? Asia Minor. Okay. Uh, we're talk <clears throat> talking about the, this Roman province of Asia and uh, makes up about one-third, the western one-third of what we would call Asia Minor today or modern-day Turkey. There you go. So think about this. How long was Paul in Corinth on the previous journey that we know of? A year and a half. Here he is in Ephesus for three years. So Corinth and Ephesus become very important places for Paul and, and the work of the early churches. He accomplished much in those locations. He wrote a number of letters, his letters from those locations as well. Acts 19 goes on to talk about the miracles that Paul performed in this region of, of Asia, saying that even handkerchiefs and aprons <clears throat> were, were taken from his body to the sick, and they were healed. And it says evil spirits went out of them. Recall the seven sons of a Jewish priest named Siva, who took it upon themselves to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. No doubt, as they had seen Paul do, with great success. But do you recall how the evil spirit responded to them? Paul, I know. He said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who are you? And then proceeded to give those seven sons of Siva a whooping they would not soon forget. Acts 19 and 17, verse 17 says that this incident became known to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And that fear fell upon them. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. It says that many believed and came confessing, telling their deeds. Many who had previously practiced magic 
were bringing their books together and burning them. And that's a reference to the big bonfire I have on the slide there. It says, books valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. You talk about a success story for the gospel. Ephesus was it. At least for a time. We'll get there in a minute. It was during those three years that, at Ephesus that Paul would most likely wrote his letter to the Galatians. You know, the rest of Paul's letters were written either to individuals like Timothy or Titus or Philemon or, or to specific churches in, in certain locations. But here we see Paul writing a letter to a group of congregations, all the congregations of this Roman province called Galatia. And that would have included, of course, uh, the cities that we previously talked about, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Antioch of Pisidia, uh, that Roman province of Pisidia having been absorbed by Galatia by the time of Paul. <clears throat> now, I do feel like I need to point out that Paul's letter to the Galatians is probably the most disputed when it comes to time and, and location of writing. <coughs> Some people feel very strongly that it was written before Acts 15. Recall the, the, the events in Acts 15 in between the first and second missionary journeys there. Where, where Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to meet with the, the elders and the apostles over what issue? Circumcision. Uh, uh, if that were true, it would make Galatians his earliest letter. Uh, however, uh, if you start reading there in Galatians chapter 2, what it's describing right there is most likely that meeting in Jerusalem. So Galatians would have been written after that event. Now, I certainly wouldn't argue with, uh, with anyone over that, uh, but it seems to me that the majority of church historians and Bible scholars place the writing of it here on the third missionary journey from Ephesus, where he had ample opportunity to do that. <clears throat> so we'll just go with that. It would also be from Ephesus that Paul would write his first letter back to the church at Corinth. Now, uh, take first letter with a grain of salt for a moment. We'll come back and talk about that. Ephesus, you can see there on the map, is not that far removed from Corinth. Just separated by a stretch of the Aegean Sea there. Uh, he, he picked up bits of information from the brethren while he was there in Ephesus. We know that uh, a variety of sources, one of which was the household of Chloe. We know that... Uh, there was a letter that was sent to him that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Uh, possibly even from three men mentioned near the end of 1 Corinthians, Stephanus, Fortunatus, uh, Archaicus, and also perhaps uh, Sosthenes, whom Paul mentions in the salutation of 1 Corinthians. If in fact this is the same Sosthenes who was beaten before the judgment seat in Corinth. Now, we don't know with certainty, of course, that, the, that we're talking about the same Sosthenes, but the fact that Sosthenes is here in Ephesus with Paul and the fact that he's included in the salutation and would have been someone known to the Corinthians makes it very likely. And so with brethren kind of coming and going from Corinth back and forth to Ephesus, that would have facilitated the passing of letters and information uh, 
that has not been preserved for us. Okay. So, by and large, uh, as we as we recall from Bruce Higdon's class on First Corinthians, a lot of that information that was being passed back and forth about the church at Corinth was not good, was it? Uh, as one might expect, the, the church at Corinth was being adversely affected by this immoral environment that surrounded them. Um, Bruce talked about in his class how, how the reputation of Corinth throughout the known world was that it was a place of debauchery, that it was a place of extremely immoral behavior. That, you know, the, Corinth was the home of the temple for Aphrodite, which is said to have housed a thousand temple prostitutes. Now, if we were to kind of zoom in on that area of Achaia or Greece here, we, we get a, cl a clearer picture of how uh, southern Greece or southern Achaia looks like an island kind of out there in the Mediterranean Sea. And, and today that, that island, that landmass there, is, is referred to as the Peloponnese. But this landmass was actually separated from northern Greece, northern Achaia, by a narrow land bridge called the Isthmus of Corinth. Now if we were to kind of zoom into that area, you can kind of get a better picture here. You see that landmass connecting southern Greece, if you will, to northern Greece called the Isthmus of Corinth. What's circled in red there is that the area of Corinth, the city of Corinth. <clears throat> now, if we were to zoom into, uh, uh, well, I already did that. So here, here you can see Corinth uh, strategically located. Now, ships could sail in from the Mediterranean Sea and from the Aegean Sea, and they could save a lot of time by simply sailing to Corinth and dragging their boats over to land uh, to that other body of water, depending on which direction they were going, rather than have to sail completely around the Peloponnese. <clears throat> now, I don't know how well you can see that, but that's a satellite view. I've just kind of kept it to scale there rather than blowing it up. Uh, there's, a, there's a canal there today, but in Paul's day, it would have been nothing more than like a boat ramp or something, and they would have used logs to drag these ships from one end to the other. And the point is that, that men who had spent months at sea would sail to Corinth and spend all their wages in just a few days in, in drinking and uh, spending time with these temple prostitutes. And, and there was a saying in those days to, to play the Corinthian or to act like a Corinthian was to be caught up in the depths of depravity that were common to this uh, region, to this area. <clears throat> you know, no doubt you've heard what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I'm sure it's pretty similar. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And if you took it with you, then you were playing the Corinthian, was this, the phrase. And I've heard it said, uh, even today, that there is too much world in the church and not enough church in the world. And that was certainly true of the church at Corinth. Uh, pride was causing division in the church and disruption in the services. Immorality and immodesty found its way into the church, which gave it a bad reputation. Uh, the brethren were taking their personal problems 
with one another before the heathen courts rather than working things out amongst themselves. There were questions about marriage, about the eating of meats that had been sacrificed to idols, about women praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, use of spiritual gifts, resurrection from the dead, the collection of the saints in Jerusalem. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 and some of the following passages, we see Paul listing this, this whole laundry list of unrighteous activities. And, and Paul would go on to say that, that such would not inherit the kingdom of God. And he said, such were some of you. You know, it's all too easy, I think, for us today to, to look back at the church of Corinth and just say, wow, what a messed up church. But you know what? There's, there's not a single one of those things that Paul lists. And, and there's not a single one of the issues that Paul admonishes them for that could not happen to this or any other congregation or to individuals in those congregations. Why? Well, because old habits die hard. Because pride is a difficult pill to swallow. Because Sin is always pleasant in the moment, isn't it? You think about that. If sin were painful in the moment, no one would be engaged in it. And so, so self-denial of those things becomes a fundamental principle of Christianity. But that's why this letter was preserved for us. Not so we could read about some church that existed 2,000 years ago and, and somehow take comfort in the thought that at least we're not as bad as they were. But so we can learn from them and from the mistakes they made and hopefully avoid making the same mistakes ourselves. And obviously these things needed to be addressed, so Paul writes this letter. He sends it by the hand of Titus. And, and then we're going to see Paul just kind of agonizing for, for months over how this letter was received and, and whether or not it had the desired effect on them. We talked about that great success story in Ephesus. Acts 19.23 says that there arose a great commotion about the way. Men like Demetrius, the silversmith, were seeing this huge downturn in their profits from making these and selling these silver shrines to the great goddess of the Ephesians, Diana. Something had to be done about these men who were saying that gods made by the hands of men were not really gods at all. Men like Demetrius appealed to their identity and to their national pride, and, and the result was the whole city coming into one place around the theater and, and, and yelling out, great is Diana the Ephesians. It says they did that for almost two hours. I mean, can you picture the whole city, people hearing this uproar and coming out to this area around the theater and some people yelling one thing and others yelling something else. And it says... In, in Acts 19 and verse 32, that most of them didn't even know why they had come together. 
And we see that after the uproar ceases in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, that Paul embraces the disciples and departs for Macedonia by way of Troas. And I want you to put a thumbtack in your mind right there at Troas. We're going to come back to that in a little while. Well, in Macedonia, the, the specific cities that Paul visits are not mentioned, but we could easily envision Paul meeting with the churches at Philippi and Thessalonica and in Berea. The second letter to the Corinthians was written from somewhere in Macedonia. We have several hints inside that second letter that tell us that. And the bulk of this quarter is going to be spent talking about that second letter to the church at Corinth. But uh, before we get there, you know, any further along the, those lines, I want to kind of give you a sense of where Paul was and when he wrote the remainder of his letters, kind of put a bow on the, the second half of Acts for us. And so thus far we've mentioned just five of Paul's 13 letters. All right, First uh, and Second Thessalonians written on the second missionary journey from where? Oh, it's on the slide. Go ahead and say it. From Corinth. Uh, Galatians, most likely written from Ephesus on that third journey. First Corinthians from Ephesus on the third journey. Second Corinthians from somewhere in Macedonia. So from Macedonia, Paul would travel to Corinth. He'd spend about three months there. And while he was there, it's believed that, that, that during that three months, he would li- write his letter to the church at Rome. Uh, Rome was a place that Paul desired to go, but it had never been there prior to writing this letter. So he did not actually start the work there. Someone else did. Corinth would have been a very opportune location for this letter to be sent. Uh, A seafaring vessel would just need to sail from the Gulf of Corinth about 150 miles uh, up the mainland of Greece, 70 miles across the Adriatic Sea to the hill of the boot of Italy, and then overland to Rome. So depending on the time of year, You know, most of that was by sea, and it would have been a relatively easy journey. So, Corinth, uh, from Corinth, on this third journey, know that Paul originally intended to go directly from Corinth back to Jerusalem. Now, remember that a big part of his third missionary journey was collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem who were enduring uh, a pretty bad famine that time. He he desperately wanted to get that relief back to them. However, Acts chapter 20 and verse 3 uh, indicates that Paul found out the Jews were plotting against him on that leg of the trip. And so he decided to take the long way around, retracing his steps back through Macedonia. Now, a number of men from various churches are mentioned by this time as accompanying Paul Presumably, they're, they're delegates from the various congregations, and they're, all, they're each carrying those relief funds back to Jerusalem from their respective congregations. <clears throat> so from Philippi, uh, Paul sails across to Troas. Uh, one thing of significance to note here at Troas at this particular time is that Paul and company must have arrived on a Monday. Because even though he's, he's behind schedule, remember now he's having to take the long way around, he's behind schedule and a bit of a hurry, but he waits for seven days 
at Troas in order to meet with the church there on the first day of the week, on Sunday, in order to break bread with them, to observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's also where Paul has one of his long sermons, if you'll recall, and a, a man picks a very bad spot to sit and fall asleep. Um, but he decides to sit in the window, and not just any window, but a third floor window. And he falls three stories to his death, and, and Paul raises him from the dead. What was that man's name? Eutychus. Okay. So uh, leaving Troas, we mentioned this earlier, Paul's really in a hurry now. He bypasses Ephesus. He stops in the city of Miletus where he sends for who? The elders of Ephesus, the Ephesian elders. And he spends some time with them, and, and that would be the last time that he would see them, at least the last time that's recorded in the book of Acts. <clears throat> From there they sail across the Mediterranean Sea and land at Tyre. From Tyre, it says they go to Ptolemaeus, where they spend a day with the brethren there, and then up to over to Caesarea. They enter the house of Philip the Evangelist. And Acts 21 and verse 10 says that a prophet from Judea came down and prophesied that Paul would be bound and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. Anybody remember that prophet's name? Agabus. And Paul replies, I'm not only ready to be bound, but I'm ready to, be, uh, ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so he goes on to Jerusalem. And, of course, this prophecy of Agabus does come to pass. That's where Paul begins this long journey to Rome. He would spend two years there at Caesarea by the sea, and then an additional two years under house arrest in Rome, before having his case heard before Caesar. Remember, he had appealed to Caesar. It would be while he was imprisoned at Rome that he would write four additional letters that we often refer to as his prison epistles, the prison letters. They were Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now, we could argue that 2 Timothy was also a prison epistle. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. So, now we've covered 10 of Paul's 13 letters. None that we know of written on the first missionary journey. Two on the second journey to the Thessalonians written from where? Written from Corinth. Third missionary journey, four letters. Galatians and 1 Corinthians written from Ephesus. 2 Corinthians written from somewhere in Macedonia. Romans written from Corinth, and then the four prison epistles. <clears throat> What's left? The letters to Timothy and Titus. Now, it does appear that Paul was released from that initial imprisonment, at least for a time, and that he was imprisoned again later. He would be imprisoned later under Nero. Uh, we don't have time to go into that forensic analysis of the scriptures that show that, but uh, I've looked at it, and, and there are bits and pieces of information in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus that indicate that after that initial imprisonment in Rome, he traveled again to Ephesus, he traveled again to Troas uh, and Macedonia, as well as the island of Crete, and also a place called Nicopolis. <clears throat> 
Some have suggested that Paul also went to Spain um, simply because he told the Romans that after visiting them, he wanted to go into Spain. So, so not much is known about what happened in between those initial imprisonments. Acts doesn't talk about that, but it would have been during that time that Paul wrote those letters, his first letter to Timothy and his letter to Titus, and instructing them on things like setting things in order and appointing elders in every city and that sort of thing. Uh, again, Paul's second imprisonment would have been under Nero. Evidence suggests that he knew that his death was imminent at that point. Uh, we can see some of that in Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy. In that letter, he would say things like, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. In the very next verse, a uh, well-known verse to us, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then in chapter 4, verses 9 through 21, he would use phrases like, Be diligent to come to me quickly. Uh, Demas has forsaken me. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Remember, we mentioned that last week. We're talking about John Mark here. They would previously had sort of had this falling out, right? Um, he says, bring the cloak that I left in Troas and uh, the books, especially the parchments. Do your utmost to come before winter. Uh, some suggest that Paul's final arrest may have been in Troas simply because he had uh, left these personal belongings behind that he wanted. <clears throat> so there you have it. Uh, the order of Paul's letters and... And, uh, and, and where they were written from, his 13 letters. So I'm not going to read through that entire slide again in the interest of time. But I did want to sort of throw this up. I talked with some of you last week about this. Kind of give you some idea about the distances that Paul traveled in these journeys. And I don't recall where I got these numbers. Uh, I don't even know if someone just measured straight line, you know, point-to-point -point distances, or if they actually tried to go down and and determine the likely roads that he traveled and, and what that would have been. I don't know. But <clears throat> at any rate, considering all three of his missionary journeys, plus his journey to Rome, some have referred to as his fourth missionary journey, but <clears throat> uh, we're talking about nearly 10,000 miles covered here. And, and just to give you a sense of perspective on that, the, the shortest distance across the United States, coast to coast, is 2,500 miles. And, and, you know, given our nice interstate system, well, it's nice in most places. Nice compared to what Paul traveled, right? Uh, and, you know, if we drove eight hours a day, we didn't exceed the speed limit, it would take nearly a week to make that drive. Paul essentially traveled from the East Coast to the West Coast and back twice in all these journeys. And he didn't have the comfort that we have in our automobiles, did he? You know, comfort from the hot, from the cold, from wind, from rain and snow, and who knows what else. Even the constant fear of bandits, perhaps, along the way. Now, I don't know how much of that would have been by boat. I don't know how much of that might have been on a donkey or on a cart or some kind of wagon. But I suspect that a lot of it was via good old-fashioned LPCs, as we used to call them in the Army, leather personnel carriers. 
In the army, that would have been the leather boots they issued to us. But in Paul's day, it would have been leather sandals, okay? Leather personnel carriers. Um, anyway, just as something to think about as we sort of try and get into the proper mindset of Paul's travels. <clears throat> so uh, I appreciate you indulging me on that. And Lee, if you'll pull up that, that other slide deck. You know, a bit of a detour back to the last half of Acts to show how it is the historical framework for so many of the New Testament letters. And I sincerely hope that you've gotten a lot out of that. I know that was, uh, you know, that was my own Operation Warp Speed, you know, through the last half of Acts there in two classes. All right, so uh, let's rewind a little bit and get more into our, our introduction of, of 2 Corinthians and try to finish that up in about the 10 minutes that we have left. Uh, where do we say uh, Paul was when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians? What journey? Let's start there. What journey was it? He only wrote two letters on his second. So when in doubt, just say third missionary journey, and you'll probably be right <laughs> for a good part of his letters. So, uh, so his first letter on the third journey from Ephesus, where he had spent how long there? Three years, okay? <clears throat> um, let's see and, and this is where I said I would make note of this first letter part uh, I think Bruce mentioned this in his first class in 1 Corinthians there, there does appear to be at least one letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians prior to what we call 1 Corinthians uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, where Paul references that earlier letter, where he'd given them some instructions and that apparently they'd misinterpreted and he needed to provide some clarification on that. So obviously the Holy Spirit did not see the need to preserve uh, that letter or any other letters for us. So he writes a letter from Ephesus, sends it to Corinth by the hand of Titus. Now, Paul closed that first letter by talking about this great door of opportunity that had opened for him in Ephesus. That's in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9 where he mentions that. And so he's likely referring to this tremendously positive response that we talked about earlier in Acts chapter 19, verses 19 and 20. That included all the burning of those books of magic. And, and remember, <clears throat> we said earlier that, that you know, Ephesus was really could have been considered the poster city for the spread of the gospel. You know, it says fear had fallen upon all the Jews and the Greeks in that region. The name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many believed and came confessing and telling their deeds. But, there's always a but in there. But, as would happen in so many places, um, Paul began to experience this great persecution. Perhaps this surrounds the events described in Acts 19 verses 23 to 41 where Demetrius the silversmith brought charges against Paul Okay, and, and where the crowd was, was the anger of the crowd was roused and they were shouting great is Diana the Ephesians for, for almost two hours. Well not much is mentioned right there in the book of Acts about that uproar or the possible persecution that followed. But Paul talks about this in the opening paragraphs of 2 Corinthians. 
he would talk about this great affliction that arose in Asia. He would say it was so severe that they were burdened beyond measure, above strength, it says, and that they despaired even of life. And he goes on to say that it was only through God and through the prayers of the Corinthians that they managed to escape death. So the book of Acts tells us that when Paul left Ephesus, that he just went into Macedonia. Acts 20 and verse 1. But it's here in 2 Corinthians that we get a little bit more information about the route. It says he went northwest from Ephesus to Troas and then crossed the Sea to Macedonia. And that's in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Um, again, it was as he was going through those parts of Macedonia that he would write this second letter to Corinth. <clears throat> now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes himself as heavily burdened. Um, Paul Butler, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, referred to 2 Corinthians as the Jeremiah of the New Testament. He goes on to say, and I'll quote from him, it's a very personal letter from the heart of this mighty apostle. In it, we are exposed to the ministry of the gospel as it stabs the human heart, as it defeats and depresses, and how preaching the gospel is fraught with personal adversaries and psychological turmoil, but that its victories and rewards are beyond all comparison to the trials. Paul stated essentially the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, when he said, for our light affliction, he says. I think he's using that phrase in a comparative sense because we just talked about how his affliction was so severe that they were uh, burdened beyond measure, above strength, that they despaired even of life. So this is some pretty serious affliction. But he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So talk about some perspective. In this letter, we're going to see words like affliction and anguish and suffering and trials and tribulations just sprinkled throughout the letter. But we're also going to see the words consolation and comfort. And the words comforted are going to be used more than all those words put together. So, why was Paul so heavily burdened, uh, at least initially? He talks about in this letter, in this second letter... Well, he was deeply troubled over the first letter that he'd written to the Corinthians because he'd been forced to so sharply rebuke them. He wasn't deeply troubled because of the things that he wrote, but because, number one, he had to write them in the first place, and number two, he yearned to know how they had responded to it, and so he was burdened about that. We mentioned this earlier. Titus had taken that first letter from Paul's hand to Ephesus to deliver to the Corinthians. Paul had hoped to meet Titus back in Troas to get an update. Remember earlier I mentioned putting a thumbtack in Troas? Well, here Paul is back in Troas, and 
Titus is nowhere to be found. Paul mentions in, in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verses 12 and 13, about a, this door of opportunity that had been opened for Paul in Troas. But because Titus wasn't there, Paul allowed discouragement to get, kind of get the better of him. And it says that he went instead into Macedonia. Uh, Paul mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 5, that when they arrived in Macedonia, they found no rest they were troubled on every side. He goes on to say that outside were conflicts and inside were fears. So this indicates that there was persecution of some sort in Macedonia, even though Acts doesn't really detail that. I mean, we, we can recall how poorly Paul had been treated previously in Macedonia, in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. So we could uh, suspect that would have continued. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, we see the words, Nevertheless, God. Now, wouldn't that be a great sermon title? Nevertheless, God. Or, but God. Look at all the times in the Bible that God intervenes on behalf of mankind. You know, that seems to be the theme of Romans, isn't it? The, the, the first several chapters talk about the wrath of God coming upon the sons of disobedience. In chapter 3, all have sinned. And at the end of chapter 6, the price of that sin is death. But God. So, nevertheless, God, Paul says, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit in 2 Corinthians as the God of all comfort. And I, I can think of, of no better time in our lives having just suffered through 2020 and looking with uncertainty to 2021 to be talking about the God of all comfort. <clears throat> so after Paul goes into Macedonia, then Titus joins them. Titus arrives with this report, and what a report it was. That Titus had been well received by the Corinthians. Paul's first letter to them was well received. They had corrected many of the problems that Paul admonished them on in that first letter. And, uh, but there were some continuing problems. We're going to see that Paul's authority was questioned. Paul's truthfulness or his veracity was questioned. Paul's speaking ability was being questioned. Uh, this apparently by false teachers that it sort of infiltrated the church at Corinth. Uh, Paul's bodily presence was questioned. Paul's motives were even questioned. Um, and I like the way uh, uh, Bob and Sandra Waldron kind of outlined the book. If you're familiar with Go Tell the News series, Chapters 1 through 7 dealing with the God of all comfort. Chapters 8 and 9 dealing with the collection for the poor saints. And chapters 10 through 13, the remainder of the letter, Paul's defense of his apostleship. And it looks like we're out of time. Uh, I'm, I am going to get into the questions and answers next week. So make sure you have those ready. And, and uh, hopefully we'll also be able to slow down just a little bit and breathe in between sentences and give you a chance to make comments and, and that sort of thing. So I thank you for your kind attention.